second. <clears throat> the first film I saw in a movie theater was The Empire Strikes Back. That film changed my five-year-old life. I had to have all the Star Wars, all the things. And I did pretty well acquiring all the things. Action figures, play sets, spaceships, bedding, t-shirts, underoos. Perhaps due to my being an only child, I was very protective and quite meticulous when it came to my treasures. And so my mamaw bought me a Star Wars backpack so that I could carry my treasures around when I went outside. Fast forward two years, I'm seven years old. I'm playing in the front yard of my grandparents' home, and my cousin Rick, who is four years older than me and lives next door, comes into the yard with a few of his friends. And of course, they begin harassing me. And so I pack up my treasures with the intent of of going in the house. Mind you, from where I am in the front door, it's about 15 feet. Well, as I turn my back to Rick, my backpack's on my back, he reaches out and, and pulls the backpack, strips it right off my body. And there's this moment where he and I look at each other, deciding what's next, who's going to move. He does, takes that backpack and starts running down the street with it. I follow. As I'm in pursuit, I start crying because my treasures. (laughs) And in the midst of the chase, I, I fall down, scrape both knees. I'm bleeding now. I'm crying harder, but I'm not giving up because (laughs) my treasures. At the end of our street sat a blue mailbox. Rick stops, opens the lid of the mailbox, shouts a few insults in my direction, and then drops my backpack with my treasures in the mailbox. He and his friends run off. I lose my seven-year-old mind. I don't know how long I stayed at that mailbox, a considerable amount of time because my papa came looking for me. And when he found me, he found a seven-year-old exhausted with a tear-streaked face and bloody knees that were dried at this point, clinging to the mailbox because I wouldn't leave the mailbox because in my mind, if we left, my treasures are going to be mailed away. And that wasn't going to happen. After a phone call to the post office, and and my other, um, my grandmother uh, worked at the post office, uh, my backpack and my treasures were retrieved and returned to me in a couple hours. When my aunt and uncle came home, keep in mind they lived next door uh, to my grandparents, my papa told them of Rick's behavior, his shenanigans that day. And so after dinner, he was marched across the driveway to apologize to me. And and he did. And yet I knew there was no sincerity in that apology, just as I knew that tomorrow he'd be right back to taunting me and harassing me again. 
And so as Rick and his parents turned to leave my grandparents' home, I said very calmly, almost silently, Rick is smoking with his friends in the backyard behind the garage when you're at work. (laughs) Rick is smoking with his friends in the backyard behind the garage when you're at work. I dropped that little gym right on my mammals, <laughs> right on my mammals Persian rug. Time stopped in that room. No one moved, no one spoke. I had him, and he knew I had him. His parents also knew I was telling the truth because Rick's facial expression, his body language just reeked of, of guilt and and fear. (laughs) Shortly thereafter, keep in mind Rick lives across the driveway, you could hear Rick being whipped by his uncle. He was grounded for the rest of the summer. It was early June. And he had to quit the summer baseball team, the thing that he loved most in the world, because he couldn't leave the house. I got even. I, I got revenge. And in the moment, a brief moment, I felt glorious. (laughs) Gloriously justified in my action. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. In a world that is all about me and my treasures, Jesus offers an alternative way to life. A way we often find idealistic, unrealistic, difficult to embody, and honestly contrary to human nature. Who wants to walk a second mile? Who wants to be smacked in the face? Who wants to give away all of their possessions? And yet, he persists. He persists in casting an alternative way to live and know life. And in this moment on the mount, Jesus is outlining the vision of God's kingdom. He's issuing a summons to all those who desire to be a part of it. He's setting forth a set of values to which his followers are to aspire. He's calling the powers of the day into question. He's offering an entirely new and radical hermeneutic. By describing an entirely different way to relate to each other. Inviting us into relationships governed not by power, not by laws, not by opposition, but by vulnerability, grounded in love. Gandhi once said, an eye for an eye makes all people blind. And well, he's right. And so here Jesus invites us to overcome our urge to seek retribution and hostility, with loving submission and forbearance. 
you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, Jesus isn't satisfied with merely overturning the power structures of this world. He knows that we were created not merely for justice, but also for love and for life. What difference does it make if we love only those who love us? What difference does it make in your life if you only greet those who greet you? What difference does it make in your life if you are only kind to those who are kind to you? What difference does it make in your life if you accept only those who accept you? What difference does it make in your life if you only give your time to those who speak and act and believe as you speak and act and believe? What difference does it make? This may come as a surprise to you, but that way of living is not love and it's not life. It's compartmentalized existence designed to keep you safe. And oftentimes we play it safe to the exclusion of growth, of possibility, of love, and of life. Strength eventually fails. Power corrupts. Alliances crumble. In survival of the fittest leaves so many bodies on the ground. Love alone transforms. Love alone redeems. Love alone creates new life. And that includes loving and praying for your enemies. That includes loving and praying for all of those people who live outside of your compartmentalized existence. As Martin Luther King Jr., a student of both Jesus and Gandhi, once said, darkness cannot overcome darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Be perfect. Therefore, as your God is perfect. Stay with me. Telos, the Greek word Jesus employs, can indeed be translated as perfect. However, it typically denotes something not so much morally perfect as it does something that has grown up, something that has matured, something that has now reached its perfect end. That is, telos is the goal or desired outcome of a thing. For instance, a fruit tree's telos, we might say, is to grow mature, to grow tall, to bear fruit. An arrow's telos, we might say, is to fly straight, to hit its mark. 
It seems to me that Jesus is not simply commanding something of us with this moment on the mount, but he is also commending something in us. That is, Jesus knows that we have more to give, that we can be and do more than we have settled for, and that we can absolutely make a difference in this world if we simply believe in ourselves and claim our birthright. Here's a secret. Not going to be a secret after I say it. Perfection is less about getting it absolutely right and more about growing up and aiming to love as God loves. Aiming. Grow up. Mature. Be perfect is not an indictment. It is, though, a promise that carries the possibility that we may love the world as God has loved us. Fully, richly, abundantly, and completely. In the days and the weeks and the months after I told on Rick, I tried to make amends. I became the apologizer. Rick, though, wouldn't forgive me, wouldn't forgive my vengeance, and perhaps I didn't deserve his forgiveness. Not only did I take baseball away from him that summer, I also took his freedom from him. And not just over the course of the summer. You see, my aunt and uncle never trusted him again, and so they became vigilant and wanted to know his whereabouts at all times. And they squeezed from him any semblance of the boy that I knew. Over the course of the next two years, Rick's character changed, his friends changed. And at the age of 13, he was caught huffing spray paint out of a paper bag behind that same garage. That was the start of of years of of rehab, of uh, court dates, and eventually the severance of any relationship between Rick and his family. Today, Rick is 45, he has four children, and he's a heroin addict. I recognize I'm not the cause of Rick's addiction, the path that he walked, or the wilderness that he now calls home. I don't carry that burden. But I have wondered, more times than I care to admit, how his life may have been different. If on that, that day in June, I had simply accepted his apology, had I not sought retribution, had I recognized the day for what it was. After all, 
my treasures were returned to me. All I really lost that day in the moment was a few tears and some skin off my knees, which honestly was kind of a daily occurrence in my boyhood. The thing that I lost, honestly, was the closest person I had to a sibling. And I know today I trade all my treasures for that relationship. He doesn't know this because I've not spoken to him in almost 20 years. Yet every time I feel hate rise within me or the desire to do harm or have this moment where I think I'm going to withhold my love from another person because they're not deserving of it, I recall his 11-year-old face. And I'm reminded that some harm cannot be undone. Some words can never be pulled back. Some love is lost forever. And so I say to you, 